Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tosussman. This podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential election, explained by the women who know it best. We've got a special live episode today with the Wednesday Group. This is a group formed by a small group of women and now men as well, after the 2016 election to become a hub for activism moving forward. So we're honored to be here. So this podcast is pretty much focused on the presidential election because it's important, but it's definitely not the whole game. So today we're gonna dive into a conversation about the intersection of the presidential election and everything else. So we're specifically gonna get into the roles of redistricting, campaign finance, and grassroots organizing. Where can we really make a difference in all of these areas? And so I am thrilled to bring on a leader in the field of grassroots organizing. Tori Taylor is the head of political and organizing at Swing Left. <laughs> Tori is truly who I call when I want an opinion on what's happening on the ground. Before joining Swing Left, Tori was a senior political advisor for the DNC and managed Kathy Manning's 2018 congressional race. Prior to that, she was at Center for American Progress, where she managed state-based advocacy campaigns and promoted progressive policies. She's also worked at Emily's List, Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, as the National Deputy Women's Vote Director on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. As a lifelong advocate for youth engagement in politics, Tory served as the National President for College Democrats of America. A native of North Carolina, Tory holds a bachelor degree from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and a master's degree from George Washington. Welcome, Tori. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to have you. I need to take you with me everywhere to introduce me like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're just going to dive right into the hard questions. What did we do wrong in 2016? <laughs> because, you know, you've worked inside the party, inside presidential campaigns, and now you're at basically a startup organization, like a resistance organization. So how have you really seen the infrastructure change? Like, do you think it's adjusting in the right way? Or do you think we really haven't learned the right lessons? Mm, that's a great question. Yes, I do think it's adjusting in the right way in, in a lot of ways. I think one, one takeaway that you know, I had after 2016 is we got started really late on a lot of things. Um, you know, we weren't able to hire a lot of our um, organizing staff in battleground states until the summer of 2016. Um, and that was... A really, a really steep staffing ramp that you know allowed some of our battleground states to to not get started as quickly as we would wanted them to, and I think one lesson that we that's one lesson that we took away from 2016, and one lesson that I really see a lot of groups mobilizing mobilizing around now for Swing Left specifically, we have an organizing program year round where we are activating volunteers, we are organizing them. We are sending them to Canvas to register voters, um, to participate in off-year elections, although there's really not such a thing as off-year elections anymore. And you know, even the traditional organizations like the Democratic National Committee, you know, the state party infrastructure, they have put a ton of resources into training college students who will be graduating in May of 2020 and available to be hired as field organizers. We are very focused on infrastructure. There's a lot that we can do before we even know who the Democratic nominee is. There's a lot of things that we can put into place now to make sure that whoever that person is, he or she, um, <laughs> has what they need to you know, run the best general election campaign possible because we won't have that nominee until August of 2020. That's a long time. Um, and 
you know, we can make sure they're set up for success. And I think there's a lot of different groups doing that. And I also think there's a lot of energy from donors and volunteers wanting to participate in that hard infrastructure building work um, to make sure we're set up for success. I mean, is it real? Like, I feel like you're making a point that we should be, you know, like you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Mm -hmm. But that feels like what everyone should be saying all the time. Yeah. So what's the difference now? Why would we, why do we believe you? Mm -hmm that it will really be different. Yeah, because we're actually doing it now. <laughs> we always say it, but now we're, now we're really doing it. Well, you know, I, I do think that one of, the, one of the factors that made 2016 really tough was that, you know, we didn't have some of this infrastructure in these states. And I think there was a little bit of unpreparedness in, in some of the organizations that were working around that election. Um, and we really learned that lesson. And I think that, um, you know, it, from a structural and a program standpoint, it just makes sense. Right. Like, you know, folks who are coming to politics from non-political spaces who come from, you know, business and media and like more corporate structures, you know, you you know that you have to build a foundation to scale. Um, and it's hard to build a, a billion dollar organization with thousands and thousands of staff when you have, you know, two months. <laughs> right. Like some some of these principles are actually pretty fundamental. Um, and, you know, I think we progressives and the Democratic Party, we were so shocked by Trump's election. And I think there is still so much shock in, in all of our bloodstreams that that happened. And there's also a lot of fear. Um, and one thing that I've really observed that is, is very different from you know, 2015 and 2016 is that, you know, we are we're, uh, we're very motivated by fear. Like we're terrified that Trump is going to win re-election again. And I think that is like making everyone put in like that extra hour during the day or make that extra phone call or give that extra dollar because we can't let him win re-election and we have to put the brakes on this administration. Um, and you know, that's pretty motivating. Um, and no one wants to feel the way that they did on Wednesday, November in 2016. No one wants to feel that way again. I get cold chills even thinking about it. Um, and so, you know, I, you ask, like, why should we believe, believe that now? I mean, I'm scared. You're scared. <laughs> right? Um, so I think, I think that's, like, that's something that's also new from 20, 2016. I think I was one of the people who was like, there's no way Hillary Clinton's not going to become president. She's one of the most qualified people to ever run for president. Um, there's no way that she, that this country doesn't elect her. And I was wrong and I don't want to be wrong again. I don't like being wrong. <laughs> Look, there's a cliche that all politics are local, but Trump has basically just run a national election all the time. Do you think that's still true that all politics are local or is the opposite true now that basically every race is nationalized? And so every race has to be won and lost on national issues. It's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think there is, there is still, I think politics is still very local, but they're becoming more and more nationalized, especially when you're running for federal office like Congress or Senate, when so many of the issues that you will be dealing with if you're elected to that office are national issues. It's a little bit easier if you're running for mayor or state legislature to localize your race. Um, but on federal races, it's pretty tough. You know, I ran a congressional campaign and, um, you know, our, our main pillar was prescription drugs and lowering those costs. It was the number one issue in our district. It was what people cared about. We kept talking about it. 
Um, but the only thing that the reporters wanted to talk to us about, you know, was whatever Trump had tweeted the day before, or, you know, what do we think about, um, like whatever's going on in the Senate or, or Kavanaugh or whatever national issue was happening, even if, you know, we as a house candidate, if Kathy had been elected to the house would have no role in that issue. Um, and so that, that was really tough. And so I think, you know, t candidates have to be very intentional about pivoting that back to what their district cares about and, you know, what the data and the information that they're getting from voters on the ground care about because the country isn't going to elect, you know, a, a candidate in North Carolina's 13th district, right? North Carolina's 13th district is going to elect that candidate. And so sometimes there can be a pull to engage in these national issues for these candidates, but it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of intentionality to make sure that your message always stays within that frame of what are the people that you're running to represent care about and to not get caught up in these national issues. Um, but it's, it's, it's becoming harder and harder. Um, you know, the way that I ran our campaign in 2018 was very different than how I would have run it in 2008. Like it, it changed a lot. And I think you can even see if, if, you know, any nerds in here go back and look at like political advertisements in like 2008 and 2006, they look different than they look now. Um, the attack ads, the positive ads. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a challenge for candidates. Um, but the, 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 the real sad part about it is it's actually the people who suffer from this because they care about local issues. <laughs> it's really, a a media driven and social media driven um, and Trump that may make them so nationalized. But honestly, you know, the, the people that we would talk to on the campaign trail, you know, they're just trying to pay their bills, right? They're just trying to make ends meet. They're trying to pay for their prescription drugs. Um, they're worried about funding for their local public schools. Um, you know, the, a lot of the national issues that Trump's tweeting about, like actually don't impact those people. And so we really do a disservice when we unlocalize our elections. The reality is there's a lot of outside money that goes into a lot of the, particularly these highly targeted races. Yeah. And some of it goes to organizations that can coordinate with the campaign and some go to the independent expenditures, which means they cannot coordinate with the campaign. So how, as a campaign manager, do you think these outside organizations play a useful role for the ones that are supporting of your candidate? And how do you plan for the ones that are going to spend money against you? Well, I mean, they're very useful when they're spending money for my candidate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a, philosoph a philosophical question there on, you know, is, is the rise of this dark money a good thing for politics? And the answer is probably no. Um, the fact that all of these independent expenditures and these dark money groups can spend millions and millions of dollars on TV, you might not know who's funding that. Um, it's, it's probably not great for democracy, but it is the way the system is set up right now. And so it's, we have to play the game as the rules are written. Um, it, is, it is a really interesting thing to try to figure out um, because you, know, you can make a few assumptions about some of these groups that you know, they are going to spend money in the races that they deem the most competitive and that they think they can have a high impact in. And those, those races typically align pretty closely with uh, races that, you know, the National Democratic or National Republican Party are also targeting. So you'll see some clear overlap in that. Um, it, you know, as a campaign manager in terms of budget planning, 
it is illegal for <laughs> campaigns to coordinate with independent expenditures. So I <laughs> did not, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of a guessing game. You have to wait until there is some type of public announcement from that that group, or you just wake up and see it on TV. As an example, in 2018, there was probably about $12 million spent in our one congressional race. More than half of that was spent in the last month, and a good chunk of that was spent on attack ads against us. Um, and, you know, it's it's very difficult as a campaign manager to know what you what's coming from the other side. Um, you know, you do your research on yourself, you on your candidate. Um, you try to be prepared for potential vulnerabilities in your candidate's background or the campaign. But if, you know, I, I couldn't prepare for the national like club for growth and the NRA to, to invest $2 million in attack ads, you know, calling my candidate a liar and saying all these negative things about her on TV. Because one of the other challenges with those independent groups is, it's actually pretty difficult to um, get TV ads or paid media taken down if it's not true. Um, it's actually really difficult to fight against that on TV. The, the, the censorship rules and kind of the laws around it are very lenient for candidates and, and some third-party groups, which is unfortunate if, if those ads are true. It's, it's really hard to get them taken down. But back to your question in terms of budgeting for it, it's, it's hard. You, you try to save enough money in your budget to be able to respond if something like that comes up. Um, and we did do that. And I know a lot of other campaigns did that. We saved a good amount of our mail budget and our TV budget to run some response ads, but we didn't have enough money. You know, I think one of the, the challenges that Democrats and progressives face is we're just outspent. You know, one big lesson that I had from 2018 and having worked in campaigns for, you know, over a decade now, uh, Republicans go pretty hard on us. <laughs> they and they go after our character. They go after our character while we're over here talking about policy. If a voter doesn't trust a candidate, they're not going to hear what you say about policy. Um, and they're not going to hear what you say about issues. And that's one thing that a lot of candidates, especially those who are going to be having very large budgets, presidential campaigns, um, Senate races, congressional races, we have to build trust and we have to build a foundation uh, and a relationship with voters that has the basis of character. Um, and then they'll hear our policy arguments. But it was one of the, the lessons we also learned from 2016. There was a pretty big deficit of trust that voters had in Hillary Clinton. And um, that probably closed a lot of doors for us in terms of voters. I mean, that's a challenge for Democrats, I think, moving forward. And, you know, I think sometimes we can be very focused on the moral high ground and like making sure we're, we're running above the fray, which we should. You know, we should stay true to our values. Should we, though? I feel like my takeaway from this point is that we should not. It, well, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm kind of laying out the the tough decision that a lot of strategists have. You know, we... We want to have the moral high ground. We want to run these races in a very ethical way, in one that centers our values. And I, I still genuinely believe that we should do that and we should we can do that. But the challenges that we're up against is we're running against a party who, who doesn't believe that. We're running against a president who doesn't believe that. We're running against a national Republican party who doesn't believe that. And so when we're playing by these rules, they're playing by like these rules. What that means is we have to be better. <laughs> We have to raise more money. We have to knock on more doors. 
We have to run perfect campaigns. Um, we have to run the best candidates. We have to be better at everything. Um, and we have to work twice as hard because we are playing at a, at a, at a deficit in that way. Um, and if we don't work twice as hard, if we don't, if we're not twice as good and make a better argument to voters and have more money and resources to communicate that message to voters, you know, it'll be tough in national elections and local elections. So, I mean, that, that was my takeaway from 2016, 2018. And when I look at 2020, that's something that is like, is a, is a huge lens that I look at the election with. Do you think that any of the presidential candidates are doing that particularly well or particularly badly at this point about creating trust? I, I think they're all doing a pretty good job. You know, I, I, we have a, so many great candidates to choose from. Um, and I think we have a ton of candidates who are doing a great job at communicating their personal stories in very creative ways, using a lot of innovative communication platforms to do it. Um, you know, really trying to run not only different types of campaigns in terms of, you know, really putting policy front and center, but also in the way that they're communicating and how they're engaging with different constituencies. Um, and so I, I look at our field and I get really excited. I get really excited. Um, and I think that there's probably no one that's thinking more about the takeaways from 2016 and why that may have ended than the people running for president now because they want to win too. So on that point of you know how the Republicans run on character and creating that deficit, one of the most the point that's really stayed with me of a Republican strategy, I interestingly saw made by Secretary Clinton after John Kerry's loss in, mm. in 2004, mm -hmm. when she said that a Republican strategy is to hit you where, you're, where you think you're strongest. Yeah. And so you're totally unprepared for how to respond. In that case, she was referring to the swift boat. John Kerry thought he was running on this impeccable, flawless military record and so couldn't be touched then. And so the campaign was totally unprepared to respond to it. Working on the campaign, I can tell you, we were totally unprepared to respond to it and actually didn't even know how to take it seriously because um, we were so unprepared for it. Do you worry that any Democratic presidential nominee will have the same problem with Trump but tenfold? I, I think there's, there's two parts of that. You know, one, candidates have to take their self-research pretty seriously. Um, they, you know, when you run for office, you do opposition research on the person you're running against, but you need to do the same process with you. <laughs> you need to make sure that you always paid your taxes. And if you didn't, you should pay them. And you need to make sure, you know, you didn't, you know, drunk, you didn't make a drunk Facebook comment six years ago about, you know, some politician that, if was if that was on a headline in the New York Times, you that wouldn't be great for you, <laughs> right? So these are just theoretical, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, uh, <laughs> from a friend. Um, <laughs> but so the research part, the presidential candidates and any candidate has to be prepared for what those vulnerabilities could be in their past, and they have to think about think about it as a Republican. What what is the worst thing that you could say about this vulnerability that I have? Um, so they all should be prepared for, it, and any candidate that's running should be. Um, but we can't we can't run our campaign based on whatever he is tweeting at 5 a.m. that morning. We we can't be reactive. Um, so we have to strike a balance between being proactive and laying out that vision for America because that's what voters need. You know, they, they need a reason to vote for you because voting against Trump is not enough. We learned that in 2016. It's not just enough to talk about how bad he is. They need, they need to know why you're the person. Um, and so I actually think that's the bigger challenge is, you know, how do you stay focused 
on communicating that message while also, you know, providing Trump the right type of response. So I do want to switch gears a little bit. There will be eventually an end to the Trump presidency, hopefully sooner rather than later. Say it again. But, <laughs> but something that will, that will last on is redistricting yep. and drawing the lines. And that's true both for Congress it's true for, and it's true for state legislative districts. Mm -hmm. So we are coming to a very important redistricting marker mm -hmm. in time. President Obama recently announced his new initiative called Redistricting You. Swing Left has their own redistricting initiative. Can you tell us why redistricting is the hot, we're in, we're in a hot redistricting moment. Unpack that for us. Yes, yes. Um, the hottest redistricting moment, if you will. Um, so, you know, as, as, as many of you probably know, we'll have a census in 2020. Um, and then after we have the next census, state legislatures will be responsible for redrawing state legislative and congressional district lines. You know, these lines are how our representatives are elected. And what we saw in 2010 when Republicans, you know, gained majorities in, in the House and also state legislatures across the country, you know, they gerrymandered our state legislative lines and our congressional lines terribly. In so many states, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, you know, we saw these lines that just packed in Democrats or communities of color to dilute their political power. And um, it turned into a decade of, uh, you know, really partisan and bad majorities for Democrats in these state legislatures and really tough congressional lines. You know, the fact that Democrats were able to make up such margins in these gerrymandered districts just was really a testament to the energy behind the blue wave of 2018. But imagine what that would have looked like under fair maps. I think about that a lot. And that's really motivating looking at 2020. And there are ways to impact the presidential race and state legislatures at the same time. There are a few of these states that are going to be battleground states for the presidential race and also have pretty competitive state legislative races too. North Carolina is a great example. I don't say it because I'm from there. <laughs> but um, you know, North Carolina will likely be a presidential state for um, our eventual Democratic nominee, a battleground state. They have a competitive US Senate race. It's hard to see us taking back the United States Senate without winning North Carolina's Senate race. And um, But then they also have one, some of the most partisan um, gerrymandered districts in the country. Um, and anyone who's been following gerrymandering knows there's a court case every other week on North Carolina's <laughs> congressional or legislative lines. But we have an opportunity to take back the state house and make and take back the state senate in, in North Carolina 2020. And so, you know, for folks who really want to, you know, have an impact that has layers, right? Like, you know, you really think about those states that like North Carolina and Ohio and Texas and, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan that have these awful gerrymandered districts, but are also so key to us winning the presidential race and so key for our electoral college math. So is that where you think the good strategy is, is to be focusing on targeted state legislative races where they can also have impact up and down the ballot? And how do you even help in a state legislative race in 
North Carolina or Wisconsin? Yeah, I think it's part of it, right? You know, I think the states where the, those layers exist are are great, um, but they're gerrymandering targets in states where, you know, there isn't a U.S. Senate race, and we still need to make up those margins. And so we, we can work in those layered states, but we also need to pay attention to the states that might not be presidential battlegrounds or might not have a Senate race to make sure that we're still making up the margins that we need. You know, there's a ton of ways to get involved with those state legislative races. You can donate money, you can make phone calls, you can write letters and postcards, um, you can eventually travel to the state to knock on doors, you can communicate to your friends in that state. I think one great thing post-2016 too is there are so many organizations like Swing Left that want to provide a very quick, easy access point to people who want to make an impact and have a high impact in these races. One of the impacts of Democrats basically like the bottom falling out in 2010 and not having a focus on state legislatures is that not only did Republicans take control of state legislatures when the lines were being drawn, but they took super majorities and full control in many states. So that's um, controlling both houses and the governorship. One thing that I heard discussed a couple of years ago that was beaten back a little bit by gains Democrats made in 2018 at a state level is that Republican think tanks were starting to organize around opening up a constitutional convention to have states pass balanced budget amendments. And they were pretty close. They were actually just a couple of states away from being able to do it, of being states where they had control of both houses and the governorship. Um, and as we talked through the scenarios of, you know, what, what are the rules in a constitutional convention? I'm going to take you guys real mm. back now to some mm. civics classes. <laughs> well, it turns out there are no rules in a constitutional convention because you write them once you open it up. So that was something that we had started discussing because the conservative think tanks were discussing it. But because Democrats started to take up and down the ballot more seriously in 2018, some of the control was pulled back from those state majorities um, and the legislatures and governorships. But I don't know that it's totally off the table. Yeah. I don't know that it's totally off the table. Um, so I wanna switch over now to some great questions that you guys have asked. We went around and asked beforehand and we have some really good ones here. Okay, so here's a good state question for you, Tori. Does it help to have members of Congress in a particular district work with their state candidates? And yeah. if so, how? Yeah, totally. I mean, one one thing about congressional races and members of Congress is they are representing set like 700, 750,000 people. State legislative candidates, you know, might be representing 25, 50,000 people, like much smaller races. And so for congressional candidates to uplift, you know, those state legislative races, sometimes they can give them a higher platform. One thing I'll note is a lot of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side have actually pledged to invest in state legislative candidates down ballot, to campaign with them, to help raise money for them, which is huge. Like, I, I can't remember, you know, presidential campaigns, I've worked on th three or four now, that um, where we made a pledge like that, or that we were actually like even asked to, um, because now I think we as progressives know how critical these state races are in 2020. And you know that energy has translated up to the presidential candidates, and now it's not only the right thing to do from a strategic standpoint for them, but it's also 
politically appropriate for them to do it. You don't want to be that one presidential candidate who's like saying no to the state ledge candidates when all the rest of the candidates are, <laughs> right? That's not like a good way to rep, like differentiate yourself from the pack. <laughs> not, it's not cool. <laughs> I'll, give you an example, I'll give you an example of how different, like what a departure that is. I worked on a presidential campaign um, in surrogates, which means bringing in like high profile, whether it's celebrities or elected officials. Um, in a swing presidential state. And we were actually directed to try to keep our surrogates away from people who are running down ballot oh, so that we preserved yeah. like the, the shine for the presidential candidate. So it is, is quite a departure. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> and you know, a lot of people that run, probably most that run for federal office, either Congress or Senate or governors, come from a state level elected position. Yeah. Yep. So can you just give us a quick estimation of like what, how different those budgets are, how different the people can be, just so mm -hmm. we have a sense of like how important it is to be able to access like a larger group of, of lists of yeah. donors. It, it's, a, it's such a great question. First of all, it's dependent on where the state legislative race is. It's all dependent on, you know, how much the media market where, you know, you might run TV ads is. And in a, in a city like New York, it's more expensive to run any type of campaign than it is in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You know, the, the average state legislative race could you know, costs anywhere from $100,000 to $3 million, depending on if you're in a competitive one. Uh, I have been part of state legislative races that we spent, you know, 300000 and we were successful. I've also been part of races that were very competitive and part of, you know, taking back a majority in a state chamber where there were independent groups that came in. And while our campaign may have only raised 300000 what the independent and dark money groups spent was actually like 2.5 million. As a campaign manager, as a candidate, you actually have a pretty little control sometimes over what's happening. You know, you can raise what you think you need to win, but you know, what other groups might do, they, they could flood you. And the average congressional race, our budget for the North Carolina 13 last cycle, which was one of uh, the most competitive races in the country, um, our budget was about 4.5 million. It also goes to show you that your impact from a volunteer and also a, a financial standpoint to state legislative races, you get a lot of bang for your buck there too. Uh, so we have time for one last question. This is a great one. So we've recently seen Democratic candidates able to compete in unexpected districts like North Carolina 9. But we also read that the, the party presence in places like South Dakota and funding in Alabama is dwindling. So how do we keep party infrastructure effective at a grassroots level and across the country? That's such a great question. Um, and it's actually something I, I really like to talk about um, because I, I grew up in a very rural part of North Carolina. I actually grew up in the 13th district. That was one of the reasons I, I went back. Uh, and the, the district that we were in last cycle was definitely one of the harder competitive races of 2018. But it was so important for us to be there. Um, you know, after the campaign was over, you know, my biggest takeaway was gerrymandering was hard. <laughs> um, and because we were running a competitive race there, there was $12 million spent there. And that was, you know, six, seven million dollars of Republican money that couldn't be spent against Katie Hill and couldn't be spent against Abigail Spanberger and couldn't be spent against Max Rose and, and, and uh, Representative Delgado. Like, we, we, Democrats have to compete everywhere. We have to recruit candidates everywhere. We have to run real campaigns everywhere. We can't cede any ground anywhere, whether it's South Dakota, whether it's rural parts of North Carolina, whether it's South Carolina. Um, you know, 
We have plug for Jamie Harrison. Jamie, yeah, Jamie Harrison, a great candidate who's running for United States Senate in, in South Carolina. Um, we have to push the boundaries of our offensive maps because that is the best defense. You know, we have to play in Republican areas. We have to fight in those areas because also at the end of the day, it's about the politics and it's about the strategy that we're making them fight on places that they didn't think they needed to fight for and we're having them spread their resources out. But at the end of the day, it's actually states like that that, you know, the people, people actually need Democrats the most, right? Like when we think about the South, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, um, Louisiana, we saw what happened with um, reproductive uh, anti-choice bills in Alabama, in Georgia. Um, it's actually these states where people need Democrats the most and people need those candidates to continue to build that infrastructure and work hard. And maybe they don't win the first race. Maybe they don't win the second race, but in the third race, now there are three cycles under that candidate's belt and under that state's belt and under that district's belt of voting for a competitive Democrat and people who have gotten used to volunteering and donating for a competitive Democrat. And now it's in the bloodstream that, okay, we should fight. Like we, we are used to fighting and we're going to get closer because some those Republicans are eventually going to retire <laughs> um, or, you know, we're eventually going to be able to build up support and our messaging in those races to win. And we saw that in 2018. Um, we see it with some of the candidates that we've recruited in these tougher states moving into 2020. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that offense is a good offense is the best defense. And um, if we ever want to continue to expand the electoral college map, <laughs> to expand our Senate map, um, to expand our congressional reach, we have to think about these states. Um, and, you know, there are incredible Democrats in Nebraska. Like there is there is a very big progressive wing of Democrats in, in Nebraska. There are really active groups of Indivisible and, and Swing Left in South Carolina. Like the people are there and they are doing really hard organizing work. And one of the one of the cases that I've made to, um, you know, different organizations and in different rooms that I've been in about some of these harder states is, you know, since there isn't a culture of competitive elections in some of those states, it's actually a lot cheaper to win those seats <laughs> because people aren't used to dumping $12 million into a Mississippi, a Mississippi congressional race. <laughs> um, and just imagine what some, a, a fraction of the resources that we spend on these races, like Georgia 6, for example, in 2017, where, where both sides spent $50 million you could have probably taken back like the West Virginia state house for Democrats <laughs> for that amount of money. Right. So, you know, we have to think about our national priorities and also, um, you know, where, where we can be creative with these dollars in a very strategic way um, that also, you know, continues to center our values and to center the people who need Democrats and our policies the most. And um, I think it is in some of those tough States. So I hope folks here and listening and, you know, that have access to, to dollars and, and, and volunteers, you know, will consider some of those tougher races because they're a good bet. They are. Well, thank you so much, Tori. Thank you. Pleasure having you. Thank you so much, everyone, for being such a great audience and everyone for organizing. So thank you so much, everyone.